this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're continuing to introduce listeners to some of the content from our new series, The Next Tsunami and Diabetes, Getting Ahead of the Rising Tide, which is targeted at frontline treaters of patients living with type 2 diabetes, obesity, or other metabolic diseases. Unlike The Next Tsunami, which is published through Buzzsprout and distributed through Apple, Spotify, Google, and an array of distributors, Rising Tide is a subscription-only podcast, which means you need to provide identifying information about yourself to access the podcast. The challenge is that Nash Tsunami listeners keep asking me, so how do I get to hear Rising Tide to decide whether I would like to subscribe or not? Some ask because they're physician specialists looking for ways to educate treaters in their communities or institutions. Some listen because they're frontline treaters who stumbled on Rising Tide and like the idea of it. And a third group consists of commercial executives and drug device or diagnostic companies or clinical trial or site management organizations, all of whom view this podcast as a possible place to advertise or sponsor episodes. If you're one of those people, this conversation is for you. This weekend, we are sharing a conversation length cut from each of our previous Rising Tide episodes that you can access without getting into the series. Three of these will be from last year, and one will be from this year's first episode. Our final Vols episode will come from our initial introduction to Jeff Lazarus and the idea of global clinical care pathways in global public health. This week's Vault episode comes from Season 2, Episode 40.3, when Jorn Schottenberg and Jeff Lazarus joined us to discuss their recent paper on comprehensive care models. This particular discussion takes a look at the importance of creating metrics and comprehensive care and addressing and accepting the idea that we need to broaden the number and diversity of healthcare providers assigned to each individual fatty liver patient to improve their care by focusing on all the areas that count in this multidimensional disease. As Jeff particularly points out, it's important that system designers ask the right questions and answer them rigorously in context. It's undesirable for the systems to look more or less identical for all patients. This is not from Rising Tide. It is, in fact, from Tsunami. But it was one of the episodes early on that led us to understand the importance of systems thinking as we develop this podcast. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion groups. Jeff, you used the phrase perversion. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Louise made the comment that this isn't rocket science, and that in a second. Louise made the comment that this isn't rocket science, and one of my thoughts was that it may not be rocket science, but without integrative thinking, nobody converts rocket science into building a rocket. And, and integrative thinking is a genius all its own, and the ability to do this kind of thing clearly is not a skill everybody has, or every group can, can, can muster. In that regard, Jeff, I was thinking it might be less a perversion than an inversion, which is you're almost literally kind of flipping inside out. The, to go back to what Jorn said about the hepatologist, inside out the direction from which you approach the problem and the goals that you bring to the party. And in that sense, what used to be necessary becomes problematic, vice versa. Jeffrey Lazarus. An inversion describes the situation pretty well. So taking taking that out, showing what the health system needs to do. People don't always have time to sit down and do that kind of health systems analysis. In school, they called us a, a jack of jack of all trades, master of none. So um, you know, but it requires some some lateral thinking, some some networking to bring the hepatologist together, endocrinologist, a dietitian, another public health expert, and sit down and say, "There's a huge problem here. How do we best address it?" And to go back to basics, we start. We look in the literature. Doesn't turn up much. Like you said, Louise, it turns up some amazing centers across um, the UK, but that's good. Now we have proof of concept and you know there's differences between those centers. We found a number of conference abstracts called emerging practices. We'll need to see more data, but there, there are initiatives going on in, in other parts of the world and across Europe and the US. And then it's the sales pitch. So you're and I don't know if you want to comment, but with your paper in, in Liver International, the uh, which I was a part of 
but I don't remember how many billions it's going to cost society and the work that the Polaris Institute has shown us in 2030, the modeling of what's going to happen with fatty liver disease. I mean, people are living longer, so liver is going to be an issue when they were dying younger. They often died of, of, of other things before the fatty liver came to be um, the cause. Jörn Schattenberg. Absolutely, Jeff. You're right there. And the numbers are big. And as the hepatologist, the cooperation we had started here really provides me with a with a tool set to talk to regulators and talk to, to the hospitals and show them there are structured ways we can move this forward for the best interest of our organization, of our healthcare system, of our patient. Whereas in hepatologists, that's what was I meant in the beginning. I normally just see this one patient. And I know about the big size of the problem, but I didn't have the tools to address. And I think the paper and the cooperation we had ongoing here really empowered me to to look at the bigger picture and bring this forward. So I feel more at the level to talk to these stakeholders and, and highlight what needs to be done. Stephen Harrison. Jeff, that highlights another paper you had in Liver International on Twitter and the social media and all the interactions relative to patients and bringing to light vast amount of unknown information about fatty liver. We see that all the time. I mean, patients are told one thing. Oftentimes what Yorn and I get, I assume Yorn, you get the same thing I do, which is you're telling me, doc, that I have advanced liver disease. My doc told me for years there was nothing to worry about here. You know, the, just uh, lose weight and exercise, get in better shape and I'll be fine. And now you're telling me I have cirrhosis. What happened? And that in a microcosm speaks to this whole model of care pathway. I was reviewing another paper over the weekend, again, highlighting that the number one way patients present to the doctor with NASH is in a decompensated state in the ER. And I don't know if that's in Germany and Barcelona how in, in the UK, but in the US, that's where I get the majority of my referrals. Now, sometimes it's alcohol, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just NASH that, that went undiagnosed until the patient presented with jaundice or bleeds or uh, looking like the Michelin man. Well, thanks for bringing that up. When we carried out this this sort of novel study looking at stigma and NAFLD on the microblogging site on, on Twitter. And, you know, the hypothesis was like, there'll be a lot of stigma. There's alcoholic is in the name, even if it's non-alcoholic. Fat is in the name, even if it's fatty liver. So we expect to see a lot on Twitter. What we found was actually there's such low awareness of NAFLD that it's not even really on Twitter, except when a bunch of us on this, <laughs> probably listening to this podcast and, and on this call and patient groups and others are tweeting about it. So in fact, the amount of stigma was low, but that I think that that's basically because the NFLD was so hardly addressed. When it was addressed, like you said, it was really at, you know people asking about information or providing professional information or tweeting their articles and so on. But what we did then was pivot and look at obesity and to no surprise, the, the sentiment analysis and the majority of tweets around weight issues are incredibly negative and incredibly stigmatizing. That raises a whole nother issue of, I don't know if we want to get into it now, but the whole, the whole naming issue, I tend to just say, NAFLD and NASH and think until we may come up with another name, but until then, don't even spell it out. People have lots of conditions they can't pronounce. This is easy to pronounce. There's no reason to spell it out. You have NASH. That's a serious liver condition because the minute they have to tell people that it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or they're at the hospital and they're being read out at the registration that you're here for a consultation because you might have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, they look around and they're overweight and, and the stigma starts. And we know that reduces health-seeking behavior. It's well-documented. People won't go for the initial um, consultation and they won't go back. So Jeff, we're not going to spend a ton of time on that today, but we are going to have an episode on it in the next couple of months. If you'd like to come back and be part of that conversation, I would love to have you. Actually, anytime you want to come back, because I love this perspective. I was thinking about your Twitter 
newspaper actually yesterday. We had lunch with a friend of my wife's who we'd not seen in a while, who has a fairly responsible position in what I'm going to call the wellness view of life side of healthcare. And she asked me what I was working on. I talked about fatty livers. Oh, I have that problem. And it proceeded that what she has is a hypertriglyceridemia, which is a dyslipidemia. But lipids are about fat and lipids process in the liver. And therefore, a fatty liver must be the same thing. It struck me. And I went back to your Twitter paper because that's a, a similar topic. People aren't clear enough on what the disease is to understand what the stigma should be. And that, when I read the paper, I was wondering how it manifested and in what kinds of people. So that, that was, at least to me, a helpful moment. I'm glad there's interest in it. We had originally developed it together with the idea was to have it included in the in the ESO Lancet Liver Commission, which is forthcoming. And then things went the way they went, and we decided to, to publish it independently when we had the data available. And there's the hashtag liver Twitter. There's increasing, and I'm really impressed, activity of the hepatologists and liver specialists online, which is incredibly important also to combat the potential stigma that will come, but also to share good information. And we just wanted to get in there and see what was going on when you look at big data, when you look at hundreds of thousands of, of tweets, because you know the field needs to understand that stigma is an issue. And we've had a lot of stigma in liver related to alcohol use. Um, now we have it related to, to, to the overweight issue. I have one more question, and then I'll give everyone else one more round, and then we can wrap up. I, I want to take Stephen's comment about drugs, and I want to take it from a slightly different, a very, um, I think, very American perspective, which is... At at least in the states where we, I think, celebrate or claim to celebrate capitalism more than other people do, other markets do, even though what we might have a just different form of who benefits from socialism in the state. Most of the education that gets done gets done by drug companies and through the spend that a company's launch, which is great, less regulated in the states and greater because pricing is less regulated in the states. So there is more power and money invested in a system that works out from the prescription, which is kind of, when I use the word inversion, that's one of the things I was thinking about. How do you see being able to shape that best in this country. I'm hard-pressed to maybe focus just on the U.S., but first I'll agree with what you said, that so much CME, continuing medical education, will come as drugs are through the pipeline. That's Aside from not having a successful molecule, the other sad side is how much continuing medical education started and then kind of started to, to drop off. So we have a period where professional societies, ESO, ASLD, LEA, Apostle, and even national organizations need to help sustain the training. We need to take this paper and others and make the argument to health systems that it makes sense for them to um, improve. And then I'm hoping that I have engaged with some pharmaceutical companies, and it seems like it's possible that they'll take on prevention issues a little bit out of the goodness of their heart to keep all of us engaged the same way we saw this play out with hepatitis C. So even in the UK, where you are, Louise, you had an agreement with one of the companies that the price for their DAAs would be X, but they also have to provide needles and syringes. So you started engaging on harm reduction, which was pure prevention activities, or some of its treatment along you know, the substitution therapy related to the increase in use of direct-acting antivirals. So I'm hoping that as well, hopefully a molecule or a drug does make it or others are in the pipeline and they start to amp up their education, I think the only way they're going to get payers and certain actors in the health system really engaged is if they also talk about the important prevention side, how it's just better for individuals, better for society, better for the system. We know that they, they want to sell their medicine in the end and they will sell some of that, but we also need to make sure that the hepatologist isn't seeing 20 patients in a day. They're the 20 right patients that need your care when you're not seeing the people who could have been cared for elsewhere. And that's a health systems issue. I mean, there's risk stratification based on NITs and, 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 and sets of questions that can be used. And so I'm hoping that the companies will continue to support that. And in the meantime, the professional organizations need to do that and as well as simply, you know, medical school training. Okay, great. Just before we wrap up real quick, so Stephen, the way I asked that question, was that consistent or at least, well, aligned 
aligned with what you were thinking about when you talk about what happens when we get drugs or before we get drugs or why we need yeah, to get drugs? Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, good. Anybody else have We're about an hour, which is when we usually start to wrap up. Anybody else have a question or comment before we go to close? Go ahead, Louise. I just had a, a question, really, where this sort of system sits. There was the publication by Tracy, Simon and the team, and Hannes Hagstrom was part of this piece of work, you guys, where her article basically said that basics and the whole team, that the simple steatosis kills. And yes, the more the fibrosis developed, the higher the rate of death was. But there was a considerable difference over those years of people with just simple steatosis dying fairly young. She's also part of another paper which... I looked at today, which absolutely shocked me. It was to do with children, and it was naffled in paediatric ch- in children with an average age of, I think, 16.9 years when they were biopsied. And these children died in their adulthood so much younger. And basically, this was a 20-year study. It was mortifying to know that for every 15 children diagnosed with naffled, there was one death. And how, if we then move into the world that simple steatosis is now a potential killer, when we look at frameworks, like this where we say GPs can manage these cases because they're just we've got steatosis in the liver where do we progress to as to when do we manage these patients how can we manage these patients if new evidence suggests cancer, cardiac conditions are actually the prime cause of people when they're biopsied at 15.9 years of age dying in their 30s. So it, it was frightening as to where we really go the more we find out about NAFLD and the basic connections and this and getting this sort of framework into comprehensive care needs to come sooner rather than later if that data is to be supported elsewhere, I suppose, particularly lower middle income countries. Thank, thanks for, for raising that. I mean, I think we, we almost owe it to, to those who have suffered and lost their lives because the system has has failed them. We often talk about um, late presentation of particular diseases in my fields with HIV and biohepatitis. Someone arrives, fibrosis stage three or four, they're late. I think we need to call it late diagnosis. The system failed. Why did we not reach them earlier? They had risk factors or we should have been checking their liver counts or they have a family history. Whatever it is, systems aren't working. And I think some of these not quite personal stories, but really tragic stories, when, especially when it's young people, are going to be a part of the effort to raise awareness around NAFLD. There's good modeling, there's cost-effectiveness studies, and the hepatologists themselves will tell the stories of, if only this person had come to me earlier, if only I had maybe come to them earlier. This is the first thing I've heard really in the time we've been doing this, when you talk about calling it a late diagnosis, where you can start to put up a key performance indicator and a metric, and you can start to evaluate evaluate health systems, by what percentage of the patients where they capture disease are they already in a late stage? And you can make a metric around that and you can reimburse or, or penalize and do all this other stuff. That, that's really interesting. Yep. We're doing it in biohepatitis. I have a PhD student who's focused on that work. Again, in biohepatitis in, in Germany, Galik Jürgen Rockstraw and the cohort are doing amazing work in HCV. We, we made a consensus definition we published a few years ago. We did it in HIV as well. And yeah, maybe you're right. We need this metric, CONAFLD. So Jaren, Steve, and others. What are you doing after this call? We need to talk. <laughs> yeah, have fun. I'll tell you what, we're going to start to bring this call to the end there, Jeff, and I'd love to facilitate that because well, yeah, I love that, those kinds of issues and that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And now, back to Roger. 
I hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you want to subscribe to Rising Tide, simply go to the surfingnash.com homepage, click the Rising Tide link on the top banner. You'll go to a page that offers two ways to subscribe. And whether you choose the one episode or full experience option, you will become a subscriber. And if you want to learn more about sponsorship, just contact me directly at roger.green at surfingnash.com. We'll be back to our traditional Nash Tsunami format next week to discuss pediatric and adolescent Napoli Nash with three guests, our friend Naeem Alkori and two first-timers, Drs. Rohit Kohli and Miriam. Boss. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.